0: So this morning we'll be reading from verses 32 to 52. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell down on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father... All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. And the young man following him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Well, as many of you know, my parents own a facility where they uh, do boarding for gro- and grooming for dogs and cats. And uh, the nice thing about that for me growing up is whenever I needed a summer job or part-time job, there was always work that was available, and I could make a little extra money. But when I was in college... I had always worked for my parents, had never had another job before, and I kind of got tired of working for my parents. And so I started to put out some applications, and it really wasn't about the money. I was making, you know, decent money, not amazing, but for a college student, it was okay. It wasn't about the money, I just thought it'd be really cool to work somewhere else. So I put out an applica- a couple of applications, and I ended up getting hired at a fast food restaurant. And again, it wasn't about the money. I thought to myself, well, I never see a lot of people at this particular place. I'll probably just go there and just kind of hang out and, you know, meet some people. And it will just be a fun time. I mean, I'd only worked for my parents, and it was work there. So I thought it would be awesome to go work at a place like that. So I started working there, and I ended up working there a total of one day because I realized it was work. It wasn't about meeting people, it was about work. So I'm there for one day and thinking to myself, so why am I working here getting paid two dollars an hour less than I could be working for my parents? So I ended up going to work back at my parents. You see, I had this kind of idealist notion of what it might be like to work for somebody else at a different job. And I think sometimes when we don't know something or haven't experienced something, we kind of idealize it you know like people when they're getting married sometimes they feel like when they get married there'll be these intense feelings of being in love all the time there'll never be any arguments or disagreements or when they're having children they'll think to themselves i'll have children my child will be a perfect little angel never have any problems never go through puberty never become a teenager or we start a new job and we think to ourselves, this is the dream job. This is my boss is going to be fair and equitable and he, this is just going to work out perfectly. But then the rubber meets, meets the road and we realize our expectations don't line up with reality. And when that happens, we might ask ourselves, so what do we do wrong? You know, someone gets married and they expect things to go so smoothly and then they get into arguments and these struggles come and they're like, did I marry the wrong person? Or they have a child and the child has struggles and they say, where did I go wrong? What did I do wrong? Or in the workplace, we have struggles. We find out maybe our boss is not so nice of a boss and we think, should I find a different place to work? Would it be better to work somewhere else? And I think in a similar way, we kind of can idealize our spiritual lives. We idealize what it's like to follow after God and to follow God's will. And when we think about following after God, we think about overwhelming joy and victory, enjoying the good life. And we think that if we follow Jesus closer, then our lives will go smoothly. We won't have as many problems. We won't have as many struggles. Now, there's an element to truth, of truth to that. It makes sense to follow after Jesus. But because, just because we follow after Jesus, just because we're doing God's will, that doesn't mean that we won't have struggles. Sometimes we have that idealistic notion that following Jesus means taking the easy road, taking the easy street. Of course it's worth it. But there's struggles that are involved with it. There's harsh realities of what it means to follow after God's will. Just like when you know, I do premarital counseling, I try, try to help couples prepare for marriage and for the struggles that they might face. You know, and there's some aspects of marriage that are unpleasant. There's, sometimes there's arguments and disagreements. And sometimes you might go to bed angry at the other person. But that doesn't mean it isn't worth it. And in the same way, in following God's will and obeying God's will, there's sometimes some harsh realities associated with that. But it's definitely worth it. So in this passage, we see three harsh realities of following after God's will or following God's will. And the first is that following God's will sometimes takes you to places that you don't want to go. Sometimes following God's will takes you to places that you don't want to go. And one of the most, there, there's ama- many different interesting things about this passage. One uh, remarkable thing about this passage is that Jesus is pretty clear. He doesn't want to go to the cross. He doesn't want to die. He doesn't want to go through the torment that he's about to go through. It describes the torment that he's experiencing in Gethsemane. It says that he was greatly distressed and he was troubled. He says that his, Jesus says his soul is sorrowful even to death. Which indicates that he was so anxious and experienced so much anxiety that it was probably producing physical symptoms. And Lucas says that he was sweating Blood. Rather than assuming the traditional posture of prayer, which was standing up, he enters into Gethsemane and he hits the dirt. He's on the ground, pleading, praying to God, saying, Abba, Father, if it's possible, remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what You will. And on the one hand, Jesus' behavior here is quite surprising. Because on the surface of it, He doesn't handle His death very well. The great philosopher Socrates was said to have greeted death as a friend and a welcome transition, a liberator to a better life. The Stoics taught that you should just clearly and serenely accept the fate that you're given, to serenely and peacefully accept your own death. But here Jesus is in torment. And I think the reason for that is not just because he's going to die. If it was just that he was going to die, it would be one thing. But Jesus knows the agony that he's going to experience. He knows that he's about to become sin for us. He knows that he's about to take on our greed, our lust, our pride. All the sin of humanity, he's about to take upon himself. And in doing that, he's going to experience the fury of God's wrath. The Father's going to turn his back on him, turn away from him. And he sees that, and he doesn't want to go through with that. He doesn't want to be cast aside by the Father. He doesn't want to experience the Father's wrath. And so he cries out to God to take that cup of suffering away. But another remarkable aspect of this passage is that for maybe the first time ever in the relationship of the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who had existed from all eternity past, maybe the only time that ever happened and ever will happen, God says no to Jesus' request. God says no. He says you have to go through with this. And of course, Jesus in his own flesh doesn't want to go through with it, but above that, he wants to honor the Father's will. And so he he does want to go to the cross, but he doesn't fleshly. Sometimes following God's will means doing things that we'd rather not do. The journey of following Jesus is not a journey of peace. prosperity it's a journey of suffering remember Peter and we looked at uh, last week about how Peter denied Jesus three times and then after Jesus rose from the dead he meets with Peter and kind of restores him and he asks him three times do you love me Simon Peter and each time Peter says yes and then Jesus after that says in John chapter 21 truly truly I say to you when you were young you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where, where you do not want to go. This he said to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. See, Peter had walked with Jesus on the glory road. When Jesus was this up and coming rabbi, when he was going around healing people and casting out demons and gaining a following, Peter was proud to be his disciple. He was proud to follow after him. But when suffering came, when Jesus was arrested, he denied that he even knew Jesus. And so here Jesus is inviting Peter to follow Him, even if it means suffering. He promises Peter a brutal death. But He says, still, follow Me. Sometimes following God's will will take us places we don't want to go. So if you're here and you are suffering, and you're going through a difficulty, don't automatically assume that you're not in God's will. Because oftentimes in our modern modern consciousness, what we've done is we've equated sadness or sorrow with sin or illness. That if you're sad or going through something difficult, it means that you're doing something wrong. And so we try to figure it out what we're doing wrong. Yet this passage shows us that suffering clearly befalls upon believers. And sometimes sorrow is the most appropriate response to the circumstance of life. So if you've gone through periods of your life where you've experienced sorrow, don't automatically assume that you're doing something wrong, because even Jesus experienced sorrow. In Revelation 21, verse 4 the Apostle John writes this, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Speaking of after the creation of new heavens and the new earth. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Now what does that indicate? It says that Jesus will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What does that indicate about the saints as they're entering into glory? As they're entering into glory with tears. They faced suffering. They faced difficulty. And one day, Jesus will wipe that suffering from our eyes. Wipe away those tears from our eyes. When we get to where we're going, when we get to heaven, there will be no more sin. There will be no more suffering. Everything will be perfect. But in the meantime, we live in a broken world. And sometimes following God's will means that we'll have to do things we don't want to do. Second harsh reality about following after God is that sometimes you'll need to follow God's will alone. Sometimes you'll need to follow God's will alone. In this passage, we see Jesus trying to draw comfort and encouragement from his closest friends, his closest disciples, Peter, James, and John. And so he takes them with takes them with him and tells them to pray, to keep watch to give Him some kind of encouragement, to show that they're with Him. And yet again and again, they fall asleep. Each and every one of His disciples would eventually abandon Him. Now, don't get me wrong, God puts people around us to encourage us, to help us in our journey. That's why we have a church. That's what a church is about, is coming together and seeking to encourage one another to live the Gospel. So we often have people around us to encourage us, to strengthen us. That's the idea of the church. But sometimes we have to do things on our own. Sometimes we'll have to walk the journey by ourselves. Sometimes God will call us to do something sacrificially and we'll tell our closest loved ones and they'll say to to us, why would you do that? Why would you risk so much? Why would you waste so much? You have such a nice life going for you. Why would you... Give up so much to follow after God. Other times, you might have people that come around you and support you, but they just—they don't understand what you're going through. You know, they have the best intentions; they just don't understand. If you're walking through the experience of losing a job, or having a serious in, uh, injury, or illness, or losing a loved one, I mean, people can come around you and support you and encourage you, but. Ultimately, you're walking that journey alone. I mean, nobody else knows what it's like to be in your shoes. So you're walking it by yourself. They just don't understand the unique suffering that you're experiencing. Even though they might try to help you and might encourage you to some extent, you're walking that journey alone. So remember the passage in John chapter 21, how Jesus essentially tells Peter that he's going to die and then tells Peter to follow him. Peter's immediate response is, so what about John? What's going to happen to him? Is he going to suffer with me? Is he going to die just like I am? And listen to what Jesus says. He says, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. There's times in our lives where we'll be walking on a journey that we're walking with God alone. Now God will be with us. He'll never forsake us. He'll never leave us. He understands our suffering better than anybody else. But there's times when the support of other people isn't, just isn't enough. But even in those moments, even when we feel alone, God knows and He understands us. In Luke chapter 22, it's recorded that an angel comes to Jesus in Gethsemane. And he strengthens him and encourages him. So even in his... This moment of his darkest need, when his whole, all of his disciples abandoned him in following God's will, God sent him what he needed an angel to strengthen him. And in the same way, God will give us what we need when we're following him. So that's the second harsh reality about following God's will. And the final harsh reality about following God's will is that we're prone to wander from God's will. We're prone to wander from God's will. After Jesus finds the disciples asleep a second time, he says this to them. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. What this indicates is the disciples didn't truly intend to fail Jesus. They didn't intend to fall asleep. They didn't intend to abandon him, but they were weak. They're prone to wander. Prone to going their own own way. And so they fell into sin. Jesus had told them, keep watch. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. But they fall asleep. And then at the moment of crisis, when they're faced with a choice, will I continue to support Jesus and follow Him, even though He's arrested? They choose to leave Him and abandon Him. But they didn't intend to. The truth is, our hearts are all prone to wander. Remember the study I Cited last week that Howard Hendricks did of 246 men who had fallen into adultery, committed adultery, had been in full-time ministry. Each and every one of them, none of them had, each and every one of them believed that this wouldn't happen to them. Yet they made compromises, little indiscretions, and that led to to a big fall. Truth is, there's nothing that as believers even, that we're not capable of, capable of apart from Christ. When we go our own way, and we're all prone to do that, there's nothing that we're not capable of. And so this passage is a stark reminder that we need to be watching, that we need to be praying, that we need to check our hearts to make sure we're actually following after Him so that we don't go astray. 1 Peter 5, 8-9 says this, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. We have an enemy that's seeking to destroy us, seeking to get us to go astray. And we're weak, we're fallible. And without the Holy Spirit's power in our life, without staying attentive, we're all prone to drift from God's will. So those are the three harsh realities about following God's will in this passage. Following God's will sometimes takes you to places you don't want to go. Sometimes you'll need to follow God's will alone and we're all prone to wander from God's will. Author Mark Batterson tells the story of a modern day martyr in his book, Chase the Lion. Man's name was J.W. Tucker and he was beaten to death and him and 60 of his Christian compatriots were thrown into the crocodile-infested Babaconde River on November 24, 1964, at the hands of Congolese rebels. Listen to what Mark Batterson says about this incident. He says, Our natural instinct is to feel sorry for Tucker, whose earthly life was seemingly cut short. But life can't be cut short when it lasts for all eternity. A holy empathy for his wife and children who survived the terrorist attack is biblically mandated. But heaven gained a hero. A hero in a long line of heroes who trace their genealogy back to the first Christian martyr, Stephen. In the grand scheme of God's good, pleasing, and perfect will, eternal gain infinitely offsets earthly pain. God doesn't promise us happily ever after. He promises so much more than that. Happily forever after. It was that eternal perspective that inspired J.W. Tucker to risk his earthly life for the gospel. Tucker didn't fear death because he had already died to self. It wasn't an uncalculated risk that led J.W. Tucker into the Congo during a civil war. He counted the cost with his missionary friend Morris Plotts. Plotz tried to convince his friend not to go. Plotts said, if you go in, he prophetically pleaded, you won't come out. Listen to what Tucker said. He says, God didn't tell me I had to come out. He only told me I had to go in. And So he followed God's will. To a place he probably didn't want to go. A place he had to go alone, essentially. But it was worth it. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hid in the field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and he sells all he has to buy that field. He says again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Following God's will, will sometimes take you to places you want to go. Sometimes you'll have to walk that road alone. Sometimes we'll have to stay, pray and do all we can to stay on that narrow road. But in the end, it's worth it. Because in the end, we get the treasure, and that treasure is Jesus. We'll get to spend forever and ever and ever with Him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your love for us. We thank You for coming to the earth to die on the cross for us. For buying our redemption so that we might have a hope. So that we might have life forever with You. Lord, I pray that You would strengthen our hearts as we walk through life in this sinful world. As sometimes we need to walk through things that we'd rather not walk through. That sometimes we'll have to walk alone. God, I pray that You'd encourage our hearts. Strengthen us to stay in the center of your God's will. And when the going gets tough, that we would just be even more resolved to follow after You. Knowing that You're worth it. Knowing at the end that we get You the greatest treasure we can ever imagine. Lord, we thank you for all that you've done for us. And we look forward to the time when we get to meet you face to face. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.